It's a, uh, it's always a bit of a blessing to have the choir sing right before a sermon. I don't know how you posture yourself in those moments, but I always find myself breathing uh, extra deep. So let's practice that right now as we move into a time of teaching together. If the singing got you part of the way there, or maybe all of the way there, to sort of open your own hearts and your minds, maybe even open up your body, and just take a breath of God's goodness that is here and present this morning. And then we breathe out gratitude and thanksgiving. Okay. I need to say thank you to, uh, to our staff, but especially to Pastor Lindsay for last week's uh, preaching and teaching. I think I was, at, maybe I was at a bookstore, so I was in Dallas last weekend, and it's a couple of hours time difference there, and so I'd already been in worship, and I was, of course, like, if I'm off for any length of time, the first thing I do is find the nearest bookstore, so I don't have enough books in my life. And uh, so Corey had sent me just a quick little clip of, of Lindsay preaching. It was the part when, Jason, you had your your participatory section. So Jason preached a little with us as well on the drums. What I found myself doing in this bookstore was crying a little bit because it felt really, really special that we have such a, a cool staff that is able to do these kinds of things and step in in that way. So I need to say thank you. I'm sure you all have said that as well. Um, but thank you, Lindsay, for last week. Now, you have warned me this morning that because it's an all-church Sunday, I have this tendency. And I've had this tendency basically my entire preaching career where uh, there are moments when all of the church is together, particularly uh, younger kids. So what are the ages that are here today? Like first grade or kindergarten up? Okay, so <laughs> like one time I preached about a witch, the witch of Endor. It's in the Bible. I wasn't off script. But it was very strange for the children present, although I'm assuming they enjoyed it deeply. Today, we're going to talk about desire and pleasure, which we're going to do our best. Uh, I always say, though, this is an opportunity for parents to have something to talk about over dinner with their children uh, after worship. But first, I want to tell you a story, and then I'm going to read you some scripture. So let's do the first slide up here, Brian. So that is a knife blood popsicle. We're off to a great start, folks. Uh, I re- this is like seared in my brain. And I won't, if anybody, after I tell this story, you tell me if you heard this from a preacher one time, probably in the 90s, probably if you were in youth group in the 90s, and it was likely a true love weights purity ball situation. Who is slightly tracking with me uncomfortably at this point? Yes, all of all the folks kind of living in my age range. Hey, if you don't know what I'm talking about, good for you. But I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about right now. So I was in a chapel service. It was like a Saturday, and it was one of these weekend, kind of like winter retreat that our youth are going on. And the theme was true love waits, because if you're going to talk about desire and pleasure, the only thing anyone ever thinks of is what? Everyone's like, I know the word, but I'm not going to say the word in church. Yes, they were talking about sort of like, bodily urges and hormones and all of us got really squirmy just like all of you are getting right now and the preacher was giving this example about how about how dangerous our desires can be we're going to read in james the book of james today about this but he gave this example of uh this special way that folks who live in like very very cold climates which right now is half of america uh, but like in the frozen parts of our world, how they catch wolves. I don't think this is true. It can't be true. It's so weird. But let's just say it is true. 
so the story goes that the, these hunters, they would take a knife, like a big knife, and they would dip it in, uh, in blood. And they would keep dipping it and freezing it and dipping it and freezing it and dipping it and freezing it until you had something that resembled a popsicle that you never wanted to eat. But if you were a wolf, that's a very tempting popsicle. So then they would take the knife with the sort of frozen blood on it and they would stick it in the ice and then it would just sort of be there waiting for some hungry wolf to come along. And then the hungry wolf would start to lick the popsicle. And it would be very, very enjoyable for said wolf. Now, the point of this story is that you might be hungry for something. Your, your, your insides, your desires might like set a flame. And so then you will go find whatever this bloody popsicle is. You can feel how the metaphor is falling apart already. Um, even though it's seared in my brain. And you will go and you will enjoy. But at some point, the wolf is licking and licking and the, and the popsicle is melting. And sooner or later, the wolf will cut their tongue on the knife. But the wolf won't know. So the wolf will keep licking away until the wolf... You know, you can see where this is going. And then you've got a dead wolf and you've got a warm coat if you are living in that area. That's the story. And they would say, the preacher would say, that is exactly what desire is like. If you give in to it a little bit, sooner or later you will find yourself like devouring your own soul. I was like 13 when I heard this story. I have never forgotten it. I was terrified. I think... I think a couple of years later or so, like my wife and I started dating in high school and we went to the youth minister and we're like, "Uh oh, I don't want to be the dead wolf on the ground. Will you please, Mr. Youth Minister, who's like four years my senior, instruct me on all of the ways of the world? It didn't it didn't go well. So I have had for a long time embedded in me from church this fear of my own desires. And maybe you have had the same sort of thing. And the message that I got across all of those years, and we'll talk about this a little bit more throughout this teaching, uh, is that these desires are so dangerous that you cannot entertain them for a moment. That the goal of the Christian life is just to shove them down, right? And then lock them up. And then put a key over that and put a chastity belt over that and then bury it in the backyard. And then when you're like in your mid-20s or something, you can open up all the boxes and everything's fine. With no ill effects. That was some of my background. So today, we're going to talk about desire, which is from James chapter 1. And then we're going to talk about pleasure, which is our reading from James chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can open with me and we're going to read. Uh, We have a Bible study that meets on Thursdays in the chapel that I help lead with the staff. And it's a really fun group of people. It's at noon, and everybody is invited. If you are retired, if you have an opening in the middle of your day, if you just want to take a day off to come to Bible study, we would love to have you. But we read through the entire book of James together in our last Bible study. And this is a very snarky book. So as you read, we're going to read today something like 30 verses. But I'm going to encourage you, because we're going to be in this book for five weeks together. Um, go home sometime this week, just sit down with a cup of tea or coffee and about an hour and just read the thing slowly, maybe one, two, or even three times. See what you see. But here, this reading, we're going to start in chapter one. We're going to read through verse 21, and then we're going to jump to chapter four and read a couple of verses there. 
the author of this book, like any good author, is weaving lots of different ideas through the book. And so the things that happen in chapter one get picked up again in chapter four. So we're going to try and stay with that theme of desire and of pleasure and figure out what this might teach us today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. When we read this together in our Bible study, we all shuddered a little bit at that. Because we have all kinds of questions about our faith and what does it mean to say that we should expect to receive nothing from the Lord. Come make an appointment with me later and I'll tell you what that might mean. Let the believer who's lowly boast in being raised up and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. It's the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. And here we go. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. You should hear resonances of the Beatitudes here. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God here. For God cannot tempt others by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire. Being lured and enticed by it. You can kind of feel the bloody popsicle metaphor working out right now. Then, when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. And then this, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then chapter four. These conflicts and these disputes among you, where do you think they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder. You covet something and you can't have it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. And here comes the snark. You ask and don't receive because you asked wrongly in order to spend what you got on your empty pleasures. Adulterers! Kids, ask your parents. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's for nothing that the scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Man, can you imagine just talking to people that way? So direct. The book of James is pragmatic wisdom. 
and it is good for us today. If it's been a while since you've been in this book, then I invite you to join back in with it. Let's talk about desire. And James in chapter 4 says it this way, These conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? So when you walked in this morning, or after the choir sang, and I said the words desire and pleasure, in the context of preaching and worship, there is some number of people in the room who got just a little bit more anxious. Because a lot of our lives are spent in this kind of battle. Where we have these cravings, we have these urges, these wants, these needs, and not always finding good outlets for them. Maybe from bad habits and patterns that we received from our families of origin. Maybe from years and years of just kind of destructive living. Or just because the world is suffused with lots of glittering images and lots of like shiny objects to pursue. But this idea of our cravings being at war within us, I I can feel that. And I know that you can feel that. It might be the most obvious, we all whispered it under our breath, the sort of like sexual pleasures of being embodied creatures and the ways that that can send us off track if it gets out of order. It might be food. Some of us crave violence from anger that's buried deep within. In our society, a lot of that craving might be for just more. More of whatever it is that we don't feel like we have enough of. Last night we watched uh, this documentary called Generation Wealth. I highly recommend it. Um, But it was this entire look at what it means to build a whole society off of endless craving and endless consumption. Where there is never enough. So if this is you this morning, I want you to take a deep breath. And I want you to let go of the wolf and the bloody popsicle metaphor just for like 30 minutes. Just set it aside. If you spent time in church in Bible studies being told over and over again that your desires are going to be the thing that kill you if you don't tamp them down and suppress them and take a pillow and just sort of like quiet the thing until it stops. And that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. Our desires are often at war within us. But God's message, the core that Jesus comes to share is one of peace, of shalom, of wholeness, of calm, of lack of anxiety. And so, yes, you might feel anxious, but that is not God's way for you. And that war within you is the war of whatever is happening in the storm inside. But that is not what God has for you. So what might peace look like? What do we do if we're not supposed to fight desire? And how did things get so out of order? We are made in such a way that we crave. I don't know about you, but when I haven't had enough food for a certain length of time, I really want some food. And if I'm close to a place that smells really good, then I feel that sort of tinge of war inside of me. 
Food is the safest category I can talk about right now in front of all of these people. But there are other things that you feel cravings to be embodied. And we have been made embodied creatures in a way that God affirms as good. But we have all of these desires. So what is it about our current condition that causes those desires to lead us into destructive patterns and behaviors? Because that's really the problem. That's the war within. We're going to jump around a little bit. Of course we are. Uh, Jesus tells a story. Jesus tells a parable about uh, that there is a, a farmer, there's a sower, and he keeps throwing seeds around to try and, and start a harvest. And these seeds, they fall on different places. It comes from Mark chapter 4. I'm just going to read you a part. Jesus tells this parable, says... There is a seed that gets thrown and some of it falls on a path and some of it takes root really quick, but then it dies. And then some of it falls in the thorns and some of it falls on good soil. But the part that falls in the thorny brush, this is what Jesus says about it. And others that are sown among the thorns, these are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the anxieties of the world. The lure of wealth and the desire for other things that come in and they choke the word and it yields nothing. There's this language of thorniness and Jesus is smart and Jesus knows his Bible. So Jesus is telling us where to look here. How did desire get so disordered? You gotta go all the way back. So if you've got a Bible, keep going backwards. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. This is my favorite drawing of the day. Lakach. That's the word in Hebrew. I'll show you what it means. Genesis chapter 3. Let's figure out how things got so off track. I'm talking about pleasure and desire. I'm getting all hot and bothered. Like a burning flame. By the end of this, let's see how many jackets have come off. So, you know the story of Genesis 3? This is the garden story. You get in Genesis 1, this creation poem about how this world came to be and how God ordered it through speech. And then in chapter 2, you get the zoomed-in picture of the garden. Chapter 3 begins to take us down the path of no return. There was this tree in the garden. There was plenty of things in the garden for humanity to eat. There's plenty. They had everything that they needed, and it was given to them. And God tells them, like, you can eat of all of this stuff, but, but you don't eat out of, the, out of that tree, okay? Just that one. Leave it alone. But everything else is yours. But there was something about it that was desirous. They craved it. And so the text says that the serpent comes and tells Eve this story about how the world works. Tells her, you're not going to die if you eat of this tree. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, lakach, she took it. That's the motion. Grasping hold of what was already given to them. She takes and she eats and hands some over to him and he takes and he eats. And at this point, whatever 
way God had made this world to work in order and in beauty and in grace begins to have this like crack that runs down the middle of it. And this desire itself doesn't go away, right? Because we are hungry creatures, hungry for a reason, in fact. That hunger, that craving, one writer says, is the beginning of desire that might lead us back to its true source, which is God. But when we did that thing, that ancient story, it shifted our desire. It sent it off course and it begins to fragment And the shiny things are harder and harder to ignore. The consequences of this decision are that desire no longer can find its true ends. So you begin chasing and chasing and chasing. At one point, God says to the woman, like, this is going to be so messed up that your desire is now going to be so inverted that you will desire your husband in such a way that he will rule over you. All of this that was created good has now been turned inside out. Jesus uses this language of thorns, which is another part of the consequences of this fall. That the ground isn't going to produce anymore, but thorns and thistles are going to spring up and follow you all of your days. At root, our ancestors and us all of the time could not stop taking what was freely given. God's goodness is for us. And these desires inside of us are to lead us to God's abundance. But over and over again, it's this motion of reaching and grasping and taking that inverts the thing. So what do we do? Because we're still hungry, we're still thirsty, still craving creatures. When I think of desire and then I think of pleasure, I think of at least these three categories, and for good reason. Like at our sort of basic creaturely level, these are the things we need to survive and to move forward in the world. Enough food and water, substance, partly bodily companionship, but also the need to continue on as a species, and then some kind of safe shelter, which is often what we really mean by money is security, that we might continue on. These are very basic. We revert back to these in times of crisis, and each of them can be a problem can be a moral quandary for us when we enter into it. We take them each at a turn, right? Food, meant for goodness. Can become an occasion for greed. When the early church gathered to have their meals together, there was a problem, Paul talks about it in one of his letters to the church, that folks would show up a little bit early, specifically the folks who were like the super members of the church, and they would eat all the food. And they wouldn't save any for the folks who would show up a little later, likely showing up later because they were still at work and they didn't have quite as much expendable finances to get there early enough to eat all the food at the beginning of the meal. Food becomes this space where we work out our greed, our hunger, and the ways that we consume it say something about where we believe the source is. 
anxiety about it pervades our culture. We are gluttons or we are starving ourselves. We have a decently unhealthy relationship with food. Sex, the same sort of thing. In fact, in the church tradition, particularly in Catholicism, when we start to talk about the like seven deadly sins or the vices, gluttony and lust are on this list. And both of these speak to desires that have become disordered. You were made to eat. This thing isn't just for talking. It's also for consuming with joy. In fact, the image of heaven is a big meal. So food is not the problem. Our relationship with it might be. We were created embodied to connect with our bodies, with one another, in a way that speaks about God's connection back to us. If you read the book, The Song of Songs, it's this full, erotic, explosive relationship. However, not a show of hands, please. But how many of us here carry with us wounds from our relationships to sex? It not being a gift, but in fact being an occasion for abuse, for exploitation, or for possession. Wealth is the same way. So what are these? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to a crowd and keeps giving them a deepened understanding of the law. And at one point he says, like, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at another with lust, you've already done the thing. And that language for even looking at another with lust is the desire to possess. To read God's goodness, not as a gift, but as something to be hoarded. And now we're getting closer to what happened when our desires became disordered. There is all of this goodness. There is all of this beauty and abundance. And deep inside of us is the reality that it is never going to be enough. You can eat of all the trees, except this one. She reaches, she takes. God has given us plenty, and yet this is often, like my motion, reaching and grasping to possess. Even the most sacred inheritance that the nation of Israel has, which is the land... They are told over and over again, you don't possess this. This is God's possession. You are just holding it for a season, so hold it lightly. How we read all of this may say something about how our desire is ordered. Is it a gift or is it something to hoard? Are we keeping tally and putting this in storehouses for the famine? Or is it new every morning? This is the crux of the thing right here.
One of my favorite things we do in our church is uh, potluck. And not just because I love food, not just because you love food, but because at potluck, what we get to experience isn't simply food, but it is one another's affections. It is each of you sitting around your kitchens and cooking something to share. There is a way in which we engage food that rightly orders us to it and to one another. When we eat with thoughtfulness, when we share with thoughtfulness, it's all of us around the stove and then all of us around the table handing the thing over. It's the same thing with sex. This isn't about your pleasure. It's about the other person's. It's about giving yourself away. It's the same thing with wealth. For a long time, and especially in, in tribal societies, the person who had the most money was only important insofar as they could give it away. And the person who had much only had much because they were the best at distributing it. They were the best at handing it over to those who needed. All of these gifts, and that's what they are, they are gifts. They are meant to be handed over, meant to be on the move. If pleasure is something that we are taking, then it is hedonism. And hedonism is the language the Greek uses for that craving within you. Your cravings are at war within you. You know, if that is true, that your relationship to those things is this motion. It is this all the time. It is the taking. If, however, this hedonism is in the giving, in the sharing then your desires will begin to find their peacefulness, their right orderliness. Just be generous with your spouse and then come back and tell me what happens. Be generous with your table. Be generous with your checkbook. Do we still carry checkbooks? Some of us do. I would say less be generous with your credit card. Your debit card is okay. Is pleasure something that you take or something that you give? That might be the question for the day. If it's something that you never feel like you're going to get enough of, then you will take anything and everything and still feel empty. Our desires are so that we move toward their source. Each time we come in here on Sundays, each time we gather around a table and open the scriptures, each time that we sit and we pray and we focus, we're training our desires to meet their true source. This hunger, this thirst, this craving is sacred. It is meant to lead us back to God and back to God's good world and to then receive those gifts with open hands. And that takes the belief that we will be able to receive and that there is a giver. And if our assumption is the only reason we have good things is because we worked really hard and we took them for ourselves, then we will live in war and anxiety all the time. So let me tell you a story. In Genesis chapter 2, it's the same word, lekach means to take or to grasp. It has another meaning. 
There's this curious part in Genesis chapter 2. In one of the rabbinical commentaries, uh, particularly Rashi, the rabbi, he sees this strange little part. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15. It says, The Lord took the man, Lechach, and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And Rashi says, Listen, you can take things. I can take this glass and bring it from here to over here. You can take this microphone and move it from one stage to the other. But how do you take a person and put them somewhere? How would I just take Warren and pick him up and bring him over here? That's a whole different thing. And so Rashi says, what is it that God is doing in this taking and placing humanity in the garden? And Rashi takes this word, lakach, and looks at its other meaning, which is not just to grasp, but to marry. And comes up with this lovely image that God does not drag us into goodness, but God seduces us with speech and calls. Because what God wants more than anything is for us to want God. What God wants is our desire, is our cravings to move toward their divine source. So God does not force or coerce, but God calls in speech, in kindness. And when that happens, the whole thing turns. No longer is it grasping, but it is being wooed. And then no longer do we have to seize, but we receive. I I do this a lot around here. This motion right here of receiving the gift that is always on offer. This open posture. Can you feel the difference? Go back one slide for me, Brian. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, uses the language of desire. It's in chapter 22. He says, I eagerly desire to eat this meal with you. It's right next to his death. He says, I desire greatly to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The language is I desire desire. I super desire. What Jesus is doing is reorienting us to our cravings, is feeding us. And in the process of feeding us. Teaching us how to receive. And so that's what we're going to do today. The loveliness of worship together. Of coming together into this space and focusing together on God. Is that our hungers, our cravings, our desires might be better aimed. And this meal is no exception. In fact, it is central to that project. In whatever way you feel your cravings off course, this is a place of reorientation. Where you were fed from the abundance of God's table. Please, when you come forward, don't grab a handful and run. Right? There's enough. There's enough. In fact, I usually ask during communion, if you would come with your hands open to receive. 
Because the act of the priest or the preacher or the deacons or the leaders to hand you is us imitating God's movement back to us over and over again. And the invitation in communion in the Lord's table is to become like Christ, which is broken, open, and poured out for the world. The giving, the giving, the giving as you receive. Never the taking, because the taking is a dead end. Can you feel it? So we're going to practice together in our bodies what it means to receive from God. And it was in that moment, in that night, when Jesus was going to be handed over to suffering and trial and then to death, that he gathered with a group of his disciples, his friends, and he sat at the table with them. And he took bread, giving thanks, broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. So take and eat. And as often as you do, remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So take and drink. And as often as you do, remember me. And so we gather month after month in this space, not just us, but communions around the world, and we receive what is on the table. With gratitude that we did nothing to earn it, and in joy in the receiving, we then become the meal for the world. I'm going to ask if our deacons would come forward at this time. And also if the hospitality would come forward to get ready to help move our congregation through the meal. A couple of words of instructions and then we're going to say a prayer together. Uh, so uh, here we uh, invite anyone who feels called to receive uh, communion. Wherever you are in your journey with Christ, uh, this is not just for folks who claim this church as their membership and their church family. When you are here, we hope you would feel like you are family. Um, you do not have to come forward to receive. Uh, you can stay where you are if that's where you are today and, and pray. I would ask if whatever way you need to, to open yourself, though, to what God is offering. If you are unable to make it to the front, we will make it to you. We have Pastor Lindsay and Mary in the back, and they'll have a station that will move through our congregation. So you're going to be released out this side, and you're going to come to whatever station you're closest to. You'll receive the cracker, and you'll receive the cup. After you've eaten and drinking, you can uh, set the cup in the glass bowl on the table, and then you're going to go back into your pew from the other side and head.